Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Provcast. My name is Mark Melton, and I am the managing editor for Providence. And I am joined here today with Tobias Kramer, and he is going to talk today about his research for his uh, PhD at the University of Cambridge, talking about religion and populist movements in Europe and the United States. So first off, thank you so much for coming in today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Mark. Really great pleasure. My first question is, like, how did you get interested in this field? I mean, it's a good question. Uh, it really goes back to uh, a couple of things. So I grew up uh, in Germany as the son, grandson, great-grandson of Lutheran pastors, actually. So I think the faith aspect has always been important to me, but I always studied politics uh, more on the political side. I worked, uh, worked with MPs in Germany and actually eventually ended up um, working uh, a bit with the German foreign ministry, particularly on religion and diplomacy. So I actually was more on the international affairs and religion side of things. Um, but I did a master's at the Kennedy School uh, at Harvard, just 2015 to 2017. Uh, so just when all the populist movements started coming up. So we had uh, the Trump campaign in the United States. We had the Brexit referendum uh, in the United Kingdom. We had uh, the rise of AFD in Germany, the, the migration crisis, etc. And one thing that just stood out to me was how many many of these parties were referencing religion the judeo-christian west christian identity in their rhetoric uh, and especially a lot of my left-wing liberal friends were all saying oh this is the the religious right returning this is a, the emergence of a religious right uh even in secular europe and a sacralization of politics um and one thing that was just interesting to me was that that didn't necessarily ring true with my own experience of going to church, of knowing people in church, of being very much working with a lot of faith leaders. Um, so I started looking a bit closer uh, and it turned out that uh, the, the image is much more uh, muddled, a bit more complicated than many of these narratives would suggest. You spoke earlier this week at Providence Social Hour and you gave some examples of how we can see some of this religious symbols in different political parties. And so could you give a couple examples? Yes, absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating development. If you look, for instance, uh, in, in Germany, uh, you had uh, the Pegida movement, the Patriotic Europeans Against the Islamization of the Occident, uh, running around through uh, Dresden, carrying oversized crosses, singing church hymns, carrying candles, and really proclaiming the the Occident is a very Christian idea in Germany. So it's like das christliche Abendland, the Christian Occident. So really making reference to this Christian identity in France. You have the Front National uh, running around in the veneration of Joan of Arc, who's a Catholic saint, and really speaking about Catholic France and France's Catholic identity. You even have uh, in Italy people like Matteo Salvini, who uh, only a couple of years ago would self-identify as a neo-pagan, uh, suddenly bringing out a crucifix and um, speaking about uh, how uh, it's about the Christian and Catholic identity of France. And then obviously in the United States, probably much more common, less, less unexpected, but perhaps still a bit surprising that somebody like Donald Trump, who... Uh, did not stand out as a significant churchgoer before, uh, started talking about uh, the war on Christmas and Christian identity, Steve Bannon similarly. So you really had this reference in a lot of movements to Christian, uh, Christian identity in societies that many expected actually to be, if not secularized in Europe, then at least on the path towards further secularization. So the people who are 
you know, in the streets of Dresden carrying these huge crosses. Are these practicing Christians or how would they self-identify? So that's absolutely fascinating. Um, if you, there was actually, uh, there were a couple of surveys taken at these demonstrations in Dresden where you had people running around with these oversized crosses and over 80% of them self-identified as irreligious or atheist. And there's actually a trend that we can see throughout Europe. So, for instance, the AFD in Germany score, scores about double as high among atheist or irreligious voters as among uh, Protestant and Protestants and Catholics. In France, similarly, the Front National or the Rassemblement National, which is what it is called now, tends to perform better, significantly better amongst those, either amongst atheists or Catholics who don't go to church. So non-practicing, so to speak, cultural Catholics. And the same is true throughout Europe, where things such as church attendance actually turn out to be one of the strongest predictors against voting uh, right-wing populist movements. Now, of course, the United States is extremely different because the tri uh, president did so extremely well uh, amongst white evangelicals. He did better than both Mitt Romney and George W. Bush uh, in that voting group. And he actually also did pretty well amongst Catholics and even mainline Protestants, in particular the white, uh, white component of, of these groups. But one interesting trend was that even for him during the primaries, he actually did best amongst those primary voters in the Republican Party who don't go to church. So he did about double as well in 2016 during the primaries uh, amongst people who never go to church as compared to uh, Republican primary voters who go to church more than weekly, um, or at least, at least weekly. Uh, so you really see there's a, an interesting dynamic going on. So during your talk earlier this week, you explained like why we see these populist movements happen in various countries at the same time. So could you kind of give an analysis of why is populism surging now? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it is fascinating because it's really in almost every Western European country. When I was looking at sta uh, case studies to do, I really had the, uh, the big choice. You could do it with almost every uh, Western, Western country. There were a lot of different theories out there. Some were saying it's about economics. Some were saying this is a religious backlash against, uh, against secularism, etc. Um, more and more, we find, I find the hypothesis in my research and more and more other researchers are also coming to the uh, conclusion that what we are actually seeing here is the rise of right-wing populism, primarily as a response to the emergence of a new social cleavage about the question of identity, about the question of who are we, who is the other, what is national identity, how do we define us and the other. And maybe very briefly for all of those who had better things to do in their mid-20s than to do a PhD in politics, social cleavages are the main social divides within a society that define the political system, shape the political system, and in particular define the political parties that uh, populate it. Uh, because they really find themselves in relation to these social divides. And traditionally for the last almost 100 years or so, but at least 50 years, um, we actually had two dominant social cleavages in Western societies with on the one hand the economic cleavage, so these are questions on the one hand between uh, the, 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 the free market economy and then the command economy, questions about um, uh, economic redistribution, about taxation, about what is the role of the state. This is really, if you like to think of it in these terms, this is the class war um, that has been defined in relation to which political parties have defined themselves. And then you had a second social cleavage um, that was about, uh, that is really about social issues and moral issues. This is about questions such as abortion, 
church state relations, um, etc., etc., which is on the one hand between social conservatives uh, and social liberals. And as a result, for most of the 20th century, our system was uh, dominated by questions like that. And you basically could map, if you think of it as a two by two matrix, with on the one hand the, the culture wars, and then on the other hand the, uh, the class struggle, uh, you could map most parties pretty straightforwardly in this two by two matrix. Now, what is interesting is that the same is not necessarily true for these new populist movements, the national populist movements, because very often they actually end up on both ends of both cleavages. So um, we see that with regards to economics, where yes, there are a lot of like neoliberal uh, right-wing populist parties, especially in, in Northern Europe or the early AFD or thinking about the Tea Party movement. But more and more, we also see quite a lot of anti-trade, a lot of protectionism, and even in, in Europe in particular, but even some of the rhetoric uh, of the Trump campaign, we see quite a focus on welfare redistribution, etc. So uh, the Front National is perhaps today more socialist on many welfare issues than the Socialist Party in France. So really, it's not necessarily about economics. Perhaps even more surprising, in particular to an American audience, is that the same seems to be true to an extent about uh, the moral cleavage, that um, many national populist movements actually say, um, we are the real, like, you have some conservative ones, of course, but you also have a lot of them saying we are the real defenders of gay rights. Like Gerd Wilders in the Netherlands saying that you have some of them saying we are the real defenders of women's rights. We are the real defenders of laicity, of secularism, of church-state uh, separation, etc., etc. So that is really interesting that even on these social issues, a lot of them don't really care much about abortion, etc., etc. Again, say it's a, it's a bit more complicated. Uh, but even here, we could see that perhaps the early Trump campaign was less concerned with uh, some of these issues uh, than other things. Indeed, when we look at the polling, uh, when we asked why would you vote for one party or the other, um, the, it, it looks more and more that the, the questions, like economic questions and social questions, are increasingly trumped by questions about immigration, uh, national identity, um, national culture, who are we, who are the other. So these are really identity questions, identitarian questions. And this is really this new divide emerging between, on the one hand, um, a more traditional, not necessarily traditional, but a more confined view of who are we, who is the other, like focusing on traditional uh, group identity markers such as ethnicity, culture, territory, history, language. These are really group identity markers. It's more of a communitarian uh, idea of uh, identity. And then on the other hand, the universalist, globalist idea of uh, diversity, uh, etc. That interestingly also allows group identity, but primarily for minority groups. Um, so their group identity is accepted, whereas for majority groups, it's really a focus on individualist form of identities that is really, to an extent, delegitimizing some of the traditional group identities. And there's a lot of literature coming out about that at the moment in the UK. Uh, some of you might have heard about David Guttar's distinction between the somewheres and the anywheres. Other talk about globalists and nationalists, about communitarians and cosmopolitans. Um, but what is really interesting is that if you look at the party systems, uh, the traditional parties were really defined in relation with the traditional cleavages, but not necessarily with the new cleavage. 
So as a result, most of them actually ended up on the cosmopolitan side of things, where pro-immigration, focusing on these individualist ideas of how do you define us and the I uh, as compared to the other. And it is really now by making national identity and immigration the centerpiece of their agenda that many national populist movements move into that and define them the, themselves primarily in relation to this new identity cleavage um, and, and almost have something of a new identity politics of the right. That like the identity politics of the left, primarily focused on these group identity markers of race, race ethnicity, uh, culture, even sexuality, but says we are defending the rights of the majority rather than that of the minority. Someone reverses it. You said that this new identity is very much you know, in opposition to Islam specifically, and that it's kind of this idea of like, I know who I am when I know who I am not. And so a lot of these groups have latched on to, you know, we are Christian because we are not Muslim. And so do you want to speak about what some of the people you've interviewed have said yeah. on this topic? Exactly right. Um, that especially in Western Europe, which is a very secular place these, way, these days, uh, you have new studies coming out saying that actually very soon in many Western European countries, Christians will be a minority, even, even just cultural Christians. Um, and it's interesting that in these secular countries, the references to religion have come back, but they are really focused, as, as you mentioned, on the question of identity. It is Christian identity as a cultural identity marker. Religion is really in this context of identity politics. They're focusing on uh, religion as who are we, who is the other. And if you think of right-wing populist um, worldview, what is defining that is basically a triangular relationship between the good, the pure, the homogeneous people, the us, and then a set of two others. On the one hand, the internal other, uh, that's the secular corrupt elite. And that's actually the same for left-wing populists as well. They have a binary distinction between the us and the external corrupted elite other. Uh, but right-wing populist is, populism is interesting because it's this third external other, um, which is, and that is interesting, increasingly defined uh, less in ethnic and national and cultural terms, but much more in civilizational religious terms. So if you had a couple of decades ago in Germany, far-right parties that were against immigration or that they were for national identity, they would say, ooh, the other was the Turk uh, in France, it would be the Moroccan in the UK, might have been the Pakistani. Now what is interesting is that this external other is redefined as the Muslim. It's the Muslim immigrant, etc. Um, and it is absolutely uh, fascinating that this doesn't necessarily mean uh, in any way return of religion to many of these countries. Actually, secularization keeps on going. Uh, on the contrary, this is really about turning religion into a group identity marker. This is about religion as a form of belonging, much more than religion as a form of uh, belief. And, and as you mentioned, I do a lot of interviews. So I've done about 120 elite interviews these days. Um, with right-wing populist leaders, um, church and faith leaders, and then on the other hand, mainstream politicians. And one question that I do ask almost all of them uh, is, uh, what does Christian identity actually mean to you? If you speak about Christian identity, what, what is that coming from? Uh, and it's absolutely fascinating that when I ask this question to faith leaders and mainstream politicians, both conservative um, and, uh, and, and, and progressive, they will, tell, they will start talking about theology. 
He told me about the Trinity, the resurrection of Christ, how uh, you model your personal life after uh, Christ's teaching. But when I asked the same question to some of the national populist leaders, in particular to the European ones, um, they start talking about culture and identity. They start talking about history. They start talking about territory. They start talking about um, really this idea of Judeo-Christian culture as a way of belonging. And interestingly, almost all of them, uh, again, this is particularly true for Europe, but also to an extent in the United States, they start talking about religion, about, uh, about Islam. So they are saying, we are Christian because we have a church in the village um, instead of a mosque. We are Christian because we um, have Sundays off, not Fridays. We are Christian because we, we say Happy Christmas and not necessarily Happy Ramadan. We are Christian because we are not Muslim. So it's really through the negative definition of the other that now Christianity comes in as an analogous uh, cultural identifier of the us. Um, so, and that is, as I say, a development that's really, really interesting, this dissociation of belief and belonging. As you were talking, I was thinking, in fact, I even wrote down another question here, but the, uh, you know, my own personal background, I come from Mississippi, so yeah. the buckle of the Bible belt, growing up and people asking, like, what church do you go to is a very common question. Yeah. And, like, people from outside the area would feel insulted initially, and I think sometimes they might just get used to that question. But... I then lived in Europe for a couple of years, did my grad work there, I taught in France, and completely different situation, and kind of like the idea of like religion and culture being more integrated than like religion and actual theological faith. And like one example was like, you know, being in France, I arrived, I think on a Saturday and Sunday morning, I was like, I don't have any toothpaste. And so I go out and I'm like looking for a store to get some toothpaste, and they're all closed. And I'm like, no one in this town is like in church, but they're like, what's going on here? And so I saw that there. And, uh, and then also talking to people of how, and I think I've might've brought this up on podcasts before, and I'm working on an article now that I'm going to kind of mention this, but talking to people of like, you know, they're like, oh, I'm very Catholic, but I'm also an atheist. Yeah. And what they meant was in their national identity, they separated themselves from other nations that were more culturally protestant because they're like well i'm catholic i went to mass a couple of times yeah. but i don't believe in god and so so yeah i definitely saw that you know distinction between coming from you know mississippi to living in scotland and france and uh, and so like would you like to go ahead and speak about you know the how is america different in all yeah. of this yeah yeah no so that is absolutely from uh, great great observation of what is happening in europe in many ways in german we even have a term for that we call it Kulturchristen, which is really cultural Christian, which means you don't necessarily believe in God at all. You don't go to church. You might not even be a member of a church, but you are culturally Christian because this is, as one AFD leader put it, this is the religion of our fathers. This is the history. Like, and there is, I don't remember in which book it was, uh, but like a, a quite famous quote of um, people saying, oh, uh, an Orthodox and a Lutheran coming together in, in, in Eastern Europe afterwards, after the fall of the wall, and they're saying, well, yeah, we are, we are both atheists, but we still can't live together because I'm a Lutheran atheist, and you're an Orthodox atheist, uh, really emphasizing this, uh, this cultural part. And you really have that a lot in Europe. Actually, one thing I, I might mention, if, um, if that's all right, just 
with regards to uh, some of the things people told me. So I could give you like a number of quotes. As I say, when I ask these people about how do you actually define Christian identity, a lot of the people are also very open about that. So you would expect maybe in the United States that people would say I'm a Christian even if they don't necessarily believe because it's what expe- uh, expected. But in Europe, I think it's so accepted to be just culturally Christian that they're very open about that. So one leader in the AFD, for instance, told me that in the AFD, the consensus is that when we say Christian or Occident, we mean it in historical and cultural terms rather than in theological terms. It's about defending our culture against other civilizations and the threat of Islam. Another leader said it is rather unusual to talk about faith at all in the AFD. If we talk about religion, it is about Islam and Islamization because of the migration crisis. The same is true in the Front National, where people told me very openly that the religious question will necessarily be central, but it will be in relation to the question of political Islam, and that it is only in relation to political Islam that then the question comes up of how do we define ourselves, and when we define ourselves, well then Christian history is just unavoidable, but this again, as you mentioned, is something cultural, something historical, rather than a way of a lived faith. And if you dig a bit deeper in some of these European movements, you even see a lot of anti-Christian currents coming up that are saying, well, we, we like this cultural historical idea, but we don't really like the theology at all. So we have this one AFD uh, person who told me that um, internally there are many people in the AFD who outwardly say they're Christian and that Christianity is extremely important to them, um, but who internally always fought the Christians in the party and really wanted to destroy us, the Christians in the party, uh, because for them Christianity was really a religion from the Near East that does not fit into Germany. Um, Again, other people told me about a strong atheist faction in the party that was saying, like, Christianity is a religion of the weak, Um, it's too welcoming to strangers. Uh, And similarly in France, you have a lot of people telling me that actually it's the the secularist uh, wing that is is running things these days. There's a strong atheist um, movement who are actually saying, well, we support Christianity primarily because it's, it's almost a dead religion in some ways. They're saying, well, we are fine with Catholicism in, in the public sphere, like having Catholicism around, because Catholicism, in their view, is inherently um, secular to the extent that they don't dare practicing their faith in public anymore. So it's really the idea of like having this cultural Christianity, but they're very much opposed to the idea, for instance, of uh, Catholics, uh, Catholic bishops speaking out about politics. Um, so really this, this idea of a uh, really like a cultural Christianity, much rather than a lift faith with real political implications. And if you start thinking of it in these terms, then it also starts making sense that so many of these parties do embrace uh, religious language, religious symbols, Christian symbols, etc. in their rhetoric, but at the same time combine this not necessarily with church teaching, but with very often quite dominant, quite secular policies. So it then really starts to make sense to have the Fornas now venerating a Catholic saint, Joan of Arc, was at the same time being very, very secularist in their attitudes towards religion, trying to push religion out of the public sphere. It starts to make sense to have Pegida carrying crosses through Dresden, uh, through secular Dresden, while at the same time the AFD is perhaps the worst relationship with the churches uh, of all parties and then the most secular uh, electorate. Uh, it starts to make sense to have Gerd Wilders in the Netherlands talking about the Netherlands Judeo-Christian culture, uh, but virtually defying most church teachings from refugees to gay marriage uh, to abortion, etc. Now, the United States is, of course, very different to that in many ways. As you say, here, traditionally, it's 
it's less of a cultural identity because you have so many different denominations. There's no one Christian, one, one denomination that's the, the old state's religion that is just associated with American history as American religion, as Catholicism is in France or Lutheranism is uh, in Germany. Um, and you definitely wouldn't find anybody, or at least I haven't found anybody, who has as openly uh, in the administration would embrace, or in the, in the GOP would embrace, the uh, secularist stances uh, as some of the European colleagues that many of these people are associating with. So if you look at the, at the Trump campaign around people like Steve Bannon has now left, uh, but he was saying that is our movement, the Front National in France, uh, the AFD in Germany. Similarly, we just had a, move, like a meeting of, the national, of national populism in Rome, where a lot of uh, figures of American conservatism were saying, well, this is our movement. So there's a certain level of self-association. Uh, but yet it is important to emphasize this is not to the same extent true in the United States. However, even in the United States, we may be, we may be seeing some inklings of that, maybe some, some early uh, parallels emerging. Um, because if we look a bit closer, it's really not just the president's personal demeanor that is often criticized that undermines some of the Christian credentials of the GOP. But also, if we look a bit more closely, um, unlike other earlier Republican candidates, um, Trump, President Trump actually barely references Christian values and theological faith. I mean, he's very open about that, that he's not, a, not big on theology. Um, uh, and it's really interesting that he's saying, well, I'm, I'm, I might not be one of you, but I'm, I'm fighting for Christian identity. So he's much rather about the, the, uh, the fight for uh, being allowed to say Christmas, the war on Christmas, than perhaps on uh, the, the, the commandments of Christ. And it was very interesting during the prayer breakfast uh, just this year, where you had Arthur Brooks, um, the former president of the AEI, giving... Uh, I think a fantastic speech on uh, love thy neighbor, um, love thy neighbor, love thy enemy uh, in particular, uh, trying to use Christian values for reconciliation and the president going up and saying, well, Arthur, I don't agree with you on that, um, but I'm fighting for Christian identity of this country. So you do also see a bit more uh, of that development in some of the rhetoric that we are seeing. Um, and perhaps also interesting is, again, at a much smaller level, but a certain emergence of um, Islam becoming a significant external other. And that is interesting because in the United States you actually have almost no Muslim immigration. The Muslims in the United, that are in the United States are extremely well integrated, um, actually above average uh, earners, very, very highly educated, etc., uh, and tend to very much identify with the United States, unlike uh, what is happening in Europe uh, in many ways. And still you had uh, some of the rhetoric, not necessarily just of the president, but people around him in the early campaign, the Muslim ban, et cetera, et cetera. You have Sharia bans uh, in states that are very unlikely to be overrun by, uh, uh, by Muslims anytime soon. So this is then also interesting, um, some of the rhetoric of Steve Bannon saying that we have to defend the Christian West against the, it's a civilizational fight against the Islamic other. So really these developments are there. Again, the United States, much softer, much smaller. It's a, it's a sub-part of the conservative movement. It's not a majority necessarily, but I talk to a lot of people in the uh, Republican Party and they're saying, these are people who weren't there before and now they're in the room. There might not be a majority in the room, there might not even be that much hurt, but they're in the room and somebody invited them and this is now around. 
Um, so we do see this development. Actually, maybe one interesting note on that is that a lot of people actually say me, tell me it's the, instead of having this movement being pushed by the Christian right, it's actually very often faith leaders in the Christian right within the administration that are the moderating voices, uh, in particular on questions such as, uh, identitarian questions such as immigration, um, race relations, um, and things that are in this way, national identity, they tend to be much more moderate on, on many of these issues and actually push for prison reform, push for immigration reform, et cetera, et cetera. So we do see um, it's maybe more a party internal fight in the United States than in Europe where these people would have their own party. Obviously, the United States is also a two-party system. And so for Christians, you know, it's either the Republicans or the Democrats. Whereas in Europe, like I'd have one German friend who's Christian who uh, would never vote for AFD is very, very devout. In fact, meeting him when I was living in Europe was the first time I was like, oh, there's actual like evangelical Christians here. Like, yeah. you know, kind of my ignorance of the continent before going there long term. But the, so kind of speak to that for a second of like, you know, because I think you know, you talked about this during the talk, and I think that seemed to explain really well of why the United States is, or one reason why the United States is so different. Another reason is probably, as you alluded to earlier, the type of um, Islam that's in America is very different than from Europe. Like, my understanding is in the United States, it is, you know, if you are coming from Pakistan and other countries, it's difficult, it's expensive to actually come here. And so the ones who do come here tend to be more affluent and more better educated, whereas in Europe, it's easier to get into the country. And so you have more of a working class immigrant. And so, so yeah, can you speak to that of like, how does the two party system kind of help differentiate the United States from Europe? Yeah, yeah. I actually very briefly, because otherwise I'll forget that, but very briefly talk on the on the Muslim immigration, um, because that is absolutely fascinating. If you look at, um, there's a lot written by people like Jose Casanova at the Berkeley Center at Georgetown, a lot of scholars say the main reason why Muslims are so much better integrated in the United States than in Europe, on the one hand, might be demographics, etc. But a really important part is that America is, first of all, a country of immigrants. So it's like you can be American. There's not one national like, ethnicity attached to it. But also because it's much more open to religion. And Muslims tend to be, uh, on average, more devout, more open uh, in their religious practice and also want to practice in the public sphere because Islam is a religion that is not just so separated from the public sphere as, as some other religions might be. Uh, and in the United States, it's been seen for a very long time to be, to be a positive if you're a person of faith. Um, so it's very welcoming. Whereas in, the, in Europe, the problem, when I talk to Muslims there, they are not saying the problem is that Europe is too Christian. They are saying that Europe isn't Christian enough secularism is actually more hostile to Muslim immigration in many ways than a predominantly Christian culture because you have a welcoming of most faith because people understand that you're religious and want to practice and talk about your religion in public. So I think that is actually something that is very often um, forgotten or especially if you talk to uh, a lot of my, my own liberal friends who think like, oh, we have to help these Muslim immigrants and therefore, let's push religion and Christianity out of the public sphere to make them feel more welcome. Uh, but actually, when you talk to many Muslims, they are saying, no, 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 we want, we want religion to be public and open. And we can actually much better debate and talk to um, some of our Christian brethren than to somebody who is entirely against religion. Uh, and that is a really interesting development. So you see that also on the evangelical side, as I'm sure you are aware, 
uh, many of the very conservative evangelicals are actually working very closely uh, with uh, with Muslims because they, they they can respect each other for having a faith and being committed to their to their faith. The second bit was about the party system, and that is, as you say, uh, I think absolutely crucial uh, to understand the role of the party system because, as you say, we have in Germany or France. Christians, especially practicing Christians, just don't vote for these parties at all. It's a very strong association. It's, uh, as I said, church attendance is one of the strongest predictors for against voting national populist parties. And the main reason for that is, I mean, a lot of people like to think it's because if you're Christian, you are maybe a better person and uh, like and, and, and are more uh, less xenophobic, less scared of, about immigration. It's all these Christian values that might play a role. But at least we don't necessarily see it with the numbers. So it actually comes to just attitudes. Most Christians are about as open to foreigners, as, as xenophobic or as authoritarian as most of their secular neighbors. It doesn't necessarily change that much. There's a lot of debate about that, but there's no clear, clear way one way or the other. However, um, Christians in Europe tended to be associated or still tend to be associated with the political with a political party of Christian democracy, um, of conservative parties that really were saying um, they were defined with a moral issue, uh, the traditional moral cleavage. If you if you think back to that, uh, and so they were just unavailable. If there's a Christian alternative, if there's a proper Christian alternative available in the political system, these voters will go for that because they want Christian values and Christian identity, ideally. Um, and it is really, if only if that party, if this alternative is not available for many people, that then they will say, oh, well, if I have the choice between a party that is secular, both in its rhetoric and in its values, uh, and then I have another party that might actually be relatively secular in a lot of their values, but at least they pay lip service to Christian identity, they'll go with the latter. Um, and you could see that very, very strongly in Europe, for instance, um, in France, where it's a very interesting voting system where in the first, it's a two-round system. So in the first round, you, you vote for your candidate. And then the second round is a runoff between the two strongest candidates. And in the first round, we saw the same thing, a vaccination effect almost of religion against voting for the right-wing populist Front National. Um, so Marine Le Pen, who was running uh, then, did in the first round did among, about double as well amongst French atheists as she did amongst French Catholics and church in particular church-going Catholics. And the church-going Catholics really voted about 55% for the conservative candidate, François Fillon, who overall only got 20%, so really disproportionately going for the traditional conservative Catholic candidate. However, because they only got 20% overall, in the second round, this option wasn't available. And then many Catholics in France were what they perceived uh, as confronted with what they perceived as the choice between the pest of an identitarian and anti-immigrationist uh, Marine Le Pen and the cholera of a secular, very liberal um, Emmanuel Macron. And then... The, this vaccination effect or religion gap basically broke down and Catholics voted almost as much for uh, Marine Le Pen as they voted for um, uh, Emmanuel Macron. So really we see this disappear. And again, in the United States, as you alluded to, it's really interesting that we seem to have a similar dynamic because, as I mentioned earlier, during the primaries, 
Trump wasn't the first choice of most Christian voters. If confronted with the alternatives of Mark Rubio, Ted Cruz, uh, Jeb Bush, etc., etc., most church-going Republicans actually went for these candidates. And it was only once these candidates were eliminated that they really flocked to the president because they, were, they perceived the other alternative of what they perceived as a very secularist uh, Democratic Party that became more secular, especially with um, uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, Clinton's campaign then uh, is just a poor alternative. It's not an alternative. This, this lack of alternatives really plays into that. Uh, so the behavior of the other parties is really, really important, whether they present themselves as a Christian alternative. And to kind of keep the you know, topic on Donald Trump for a second, you know, as you describe him and as I see him and as you describe these different dynamics in Europe and the United States, uh, it seems to me, looking at it this way, that Donald Trump seems to be more in line with European national European populist thinking than he does with American Christians thinking in the sense of this view of populism like would you agree with that or you know do you see Donald Trump possibly being more in line with them mm. no I think it's this is definitely an interesting question I think we have to here also be able to allow for individuals to change uh, I think it was very clear in early 2016 during the primaries that he was much closer to the European side of populism. Uh, he didn't reference Christianity, like Christian values, much. Uh, I mean, he had the famous reference to the two Corinthians, etc. And, and I also talked to a couple of people that were saying oh, early on that there wasn't really much faith advice going on. It was pretty, pretty much uh, only very late into the debate that that came into it. Um, so that he was not, so to speak, a, a creature of the Christian right. He didn't come out of this movement. This was about something different. His focus was on immigration. His focus was on national identity. These were like the identitarian issues uh, that played into it. However, once the primary ended, then he was making a real effort to get these Christian voters in. And I think that is a really important difference in, between Europe and the United States. In the United States, the Christian, Christian right, I think, is always a bad word, but the Conservative Christians are such an important part of the Republican coalition. It's a very important voting bloc um, that you have to take them into account. And I, what I hear is that in many ways the president has done so. So I've talked to a lot of faith leaders who said they were initially critical and most of their friends were initially critical. Uh, you had surveys among uh, evangelical leaders um, where it said over 95% of them were against Trump during the primaries, but he invited them in to talk to him and say, like, what do I need to do to please your constituency? And when you talk to them, they would also say he delivered on a lot of these things. Um, so I think there's a transactional relationship in some ways, but one must also admit in many ways uh, he is delivering on in a lot of these issues, which is very different to uh, European right-wing populists. So he might still not be a converted uh, Christian, but he's delivering on many of these issues. Now, the risk is, of course, um, what do you have to give up in return uh, if it is transactional? Uh, and there, I mean, the debate is out, but to what extent? The one question is, of course, always who's changing more? Are the evangelical leaders changing Trump into a traditional conservative and a Bush kind of, a George W. Bush kind of a compassionate conservative? Um, or are many of them also changed into more of a more radical, uh, 
like combative idea of Christianity being less about love thy neighbor, but more about fight thy enemy. And for Donald Trump, he has to, it, you know, if he wants to win re-election, his victory was so narrow in 2016, he cannot lose Christians. And so he has to deliver to uh, you know, retain their vote, it seems to me. And so maybe that's just another part of the two-party system. And that's a very narrow, like if he could have won lopsided, you know, I think things might have been different. But of course, that's hypothetical. So there's not a lot of practicing Christians in these populist movements in Europe, but there are some, correct? What experience do they have participating in these movements? Are they accepted, or is there an anti-religion, even though they're using the symbols, an anti-Christian you know, atmosphere? And are there people who experience these Christians as they're you know, referencing these crosses and Christian symbols and then converting to Christianity because of their association with the movement? Yeah, so that is in particular the question, I guess, uh, very, much, very important for Europe. And it's very interesting uh, if you look at some of the movements. So for instance, the early AFD was initially not founded as a particularly populist movement. It was actually a very much upper middle class sort of professors movement and given that Christianity is becoming very much of a upper middle class thing in, in large parts of Europe. Um, there were actually a lot of Christians in that party initially because they were saying the, uh, the, the, the German Christian Democrats are not conservative enough on things like gay marriage and abortion, etc, etc, and we wanted a more Christian, conservative Christian party. So they were again more uh, their vote was more, their, their, their behavior, political behavior was more informed by the two traditional cleavages, the economic and the social cleavage. And many of them were then Christians in the party. However, they told me that really after a couple of years, as the party started to pick up these identitarian topics and really immigrate anti-immigrationism, nationalism to a large extent, they got a whole new electorate come in um, and also a whole new membership come in that often was much more secular because it tended to be uh, a very different demographic, a very different, uh, much more working class demographic, which in, especially in Europe is uh, very, very much secularized. Um, and they would also bring in some of the people who um, are really nationalist to the extent that they're also so nationalist that they're atheists and actually quite critical of Christianity. So I talked to some people who were telling me, well, that internally um, you had a lot of people saying, Christianity is a religion of the weak. Christianity is not a real religion for Germany or is not a real religion for France. It's a Semitic religion from the Near East. It's a religion, it's a, uh, almost a Nietzschean way, if you think of Nietzsche, uh, a slave religion, a slave mentality, because it's, it's really for the weak and we, are, we need to be strong and we need to, it's, it's almost a, uh, also a very gendered way of speaking. We need to have like a masculine and uh, muscular uh, Christianity. Um, or like identity and Christianity is weak and feminine. Uh, so that is an, an interesting development. Uh, and you also have a lot of, uh, of, of atheists in these parties who just say, like, well, we don't, we don't need that. Um, so I talked to a lot of people who actually told me um, that, yeah, they were pushed out of the party, that they were almost silenced, that if you're openly Christian and also practice your faith, you know you're going to have like uh, half of the party against you. You will never assume the really important offices. Uh, some people even left the party because they were saying they weren't allowed to talk about these things publicly. Uh, so that's a really interesting development. And I think it's largely due to a development of voting behavior where and that is very often overseen, in particular in, uh, in academic circles that tend to be more liberal, is that we are seeing a schism 
in many ways amongst right-wing voters. Uh, between, on the one hand, the traditional right, uh, that tended to be more Christian in many ways, that uh, broadly speaking was composed of the more ch church-going, more educated middle classes that remain committed to church teachings, would attend church frequently, would be socially conservative, but also open to immigration uh, and uh, attached to traditional conservative parties. This is, to an extent, the, the country club Republican, if you want to think of it in American terms. And then you also have, compared to that, a new, more post-Christian right uh, emerging that is much more uh, consisting of uh, more working class voters and that combines often before voted progressive parties, social democrat in Europe, democratic in, uh, in the United States, that, is, that really combines more secular values with a certain form of cultural uh, nativism and national populism uh, that actually tends to be very much secularized also in their attendance. They, they are often alienated from institutions, in particular from religious institutions. These people don't necessarily go to church at all uh, and are therefore, have therefore also, also little allegiance to church teachings. They are m more progressive on social issues, but much more conservative, so to speak, on issues such as immigration. Uh, and they are much more, they don't have the same attachment to conservative, traditional conservatism, and are much more open to national populist uh, movement. And I think that that is driving that to a large extent. So have there been many conversions? That's a question I know I've heard Americans ask in this context, because it would seem that if they are you know, dealing with these symbols of Christianity, then maybe they might come to faith because of it. Yeah, so I've, I've, I've heard that question a couple of times, uh, and I've talked to, some, to a lot of people um, in these movements, uh, and they were saying, as you say, the identitarian movement is now embracing uh, Christianity, but as I say, more of an identitarian way of like, this is who we are, of a way of ordering society. Um, and I've asked whether there are conversions and what I've been told is that it is minimal, absolutely minimal, uh, that it's really a cultural thing. Um, and partly I think that might be the fact, might, might be due to the fact that there are very few, very practicing theological Christians in these parties. There are Christians who do believe in God, but it's the, the culture in these parties is much more secular. So I think as a result, you won't necessarily have the same conversion to faith uh, itself, uh, given that you don't necessarily have the same level of faithful Christians in these parties. I'm not necessarily sure whether the same is true more or less in the United States. But again, I talked to a couple of people and most of them were telling me there are very, very few conversions because it's just not about that. Actually, it's more on the contrary that it's more acceptable to be secular because you get the secularist as part of the movement uh, of, of conservatism or nationalism. You have it increasingly that people are more open about saying, I don't go to church. I'm a, uh, I'm a, I'm a cultural evangelical. That is a whole new concept that is emerging at the moment because the very definition, if you ask the National Association of Evangelical, what is an evangelical? It's somebody who, is, who lives their faith, who uh, practices their faith, who goes to church at least once a week, very often more, significantly more often. And the idea of a cultural uh, evangelical who is culturally evangelical but doesn't practice uh, the Christian faith is a whole new concept. But you see it more and more. A lot of people uh, in surveys will say, ooh, yes, I, I identify as an evangelical, but I don't, I don't pray, I don't go to church. Um, so it's almost the idea of a 
Christian nationalism, it is not really about Christianity as a faith. It's about Christianity as an identity. But this becomes more acceptable uh, than, it, than it used to in many ways. So again, we might be witnessing the slow emergence of a post-Christian right rather than a return of a theological Christian right. So how do Christians in Europe react to uh, the AFD and other groups using the religious symbols? Yeah, so it's a really interesting um, development there because Christian, especially Christian, the Christian leadership in Europe was from the beginning quite hostile to this nationalism. Perhaps the most outspoken public critics of the Front National and the uh, AFD in the German and French public sphere, the same is true in Italy, where uh, the Pope basically has a personal fight with the, uh, with the um, Lega Nord, the Salvini movement, and where I think now Salvini is running around with a t-shirt saying, Benedict is my Pope. Although Pope Benedict would definitely not want, want to hear that, but almost questioning the, the authority of the Pope and saying we are, we are more Catholic than the Pope. So the Catholic Church, the institution of the Church, both Protestant and uh, Catholic in, in Europe, have been extremely critical of them. In Germany, they would even exclude AFD politicians from debates. There is no case so far of clergy associating with the AFD, but there is even the discussion where they would be permissible uh, uh, to have clergy that is AFD affiliated. Um, so, so quite extreme. They would go out and demonstrate against AFD conferences with slogans saying, our, our cross has no hooks, uh, with a reference to, to the swastika, um, etc., etc. What is interesting, however, is there's a real debate going on within the churches uh, about the risks of that. Because on the one hand, it, is really, it has a real impact, because um, surveys show, and uh, the churches are self-aware, um, that this really creates a social taboo uh, amongst Christians. So part of the reasons why Christians don't vote in Europe don't vote for these parties is because it's really unacceptable in church. If you go to church on a Sunday uh, and everybody runs, you, tells you, around you tells you it is unacceptable, to, it's a not-Christian vote, it's a not-Christian party, and as a Christian you ought not to embrace these values then it's a really high social cost to run around and say, well, I'm, I'm in this, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-immigration, etc., etc. Um, you can even see a Pope Francis effect in France, which is really interesting. So whenever Pope Francis says something pro-immigration uh, and anti-populism, you see among French church attendants uh, the um, openness towards immigration pop up uh, and the um, voting intentions for the Front National go down. So that's a very interesting development. However, the problem of this social taboo is that it also, on the one hand, it has the risk of politicizing religion. Um, so the, the fear that then at some point they might start saying, well, it's actually just liberal ideology that is driving this. And you hear that, uh, that accusation for a lot of um, Christian leaders in the United States who criticize the Trump movement. And then they are accused of be just being liberals and politicizing and, 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 and wrapping their views into Christianity. They accuse the other side of doing exactly the same thing. Um, but it is a, a real risk of politicization. It's also a real risk that this social firewall cuts both ways and that Christians who might have been in these parties, who have doubts about these parties because of some of the uh, anti-Christian or secular backlash in these parties, can't find their way back. And it's also not necessarily very coherent with Christian uh, <laughs> virtues and values to say, uh, these people are not permissible or acceptable. You, you love thy neighbor, even if they are right-wing populist. So what I've been talking to, um, when I've been talking to Christian leaders in Europe, they are saying, 
in order to avoid that, they try to stop talking about politics. Uh, they try to stop talking about really just immigration from a political bit or like contradicting um, really the, polit the policies, um, but waiting, trying to fight right-wing populists on their own ground. So to an extent, waiting for national populists to reference Christianity, to reference Christian identity, to reference Christian, use Christian language, use Christian symbols, and then come out and say, talk theology. And say, like, how do you theologically uh, defend that? What do you actually mean by, by Christian identity? And, has been, and, and then they're really on their own ground, and then they usually are much more, um, on the one hand, respected, because people say, like, well, it's, if it's theology, the church is allowed to talk about that. It's not politics. And also because their theology often is, obviously, they are theologians, so they know what they're talking about. So it's been really interesting uh, you had the uh, some members of the uh, AFD or the Front National um, promoting relatively interesting theological interpretations of uh, scripture, and were using that for their own aims. So I came across the um, the idea that love thy neighbor is meant geographically. So if you love thy neighbor, that means um, you love yourself, you love your family, you love your nation, but not those Syrians. They're really far away. That isn't your neighbor. You don't need to love them. Um, and really the idea that because you love thy neighbor, you have to love the nation more than other nations. Uh, so really prioritization uh, of this. Another one which I heard was um, the, the Good Samaritan parable being rephrased, saying, well, the Good Samaritan, uh, yes, he helped the stranger. Yes, he helped the foreigner. But he helped the foreigner in their own land. He didn't take him home to, uh, to his own country, but he helped him over there. So therefore... The Good Samaritan is actually an example that we shouldn't allow foreigners in our country. We should help them over there where they, where they don't bother us. Um, then, of course, you get Christian bishops and theologians come out and say, like, well, that's a very unorthodox reading of uh, these two commandments. Um, and I think on the theological ground, they're saying this works much better because they, they avoid the politicization effect. Um, and it's actually an interesting development that in the United States, in spite of religion or Christianity being very much debated, uh, for instance, when we had the recent uh, Christianity Today editorial, uh, there was afterwards much debate of the politicization of religion and um, how Christianity Today doesn't speak for Christianity, and then on the other side, how the President's Faith Advisory bo uh, Board doesn't speak about the, uh, about, for Christianity. But there was actually very little talk about theology. There was like very, very little talk about theology itself. It's more of a political trying to claim uh, one way or the other. What role does like either anti-Semitism or support for Israel play in these European populist movements? Yeah, no, that's a that's a really fascinating question because we see so much change in that. So if you go back to traditional far right and right wing populist movements in Europe, they or these parties at least often have a quite anti-Semitic history. The Front National was founded by many people who were associated with the uh, Pétain regime that co collaborated with the Nazis. Jean-Marie Le Pen, the, the founder and long year and for several decades leader of the Front National, denied the Holocaust, and that was pretty normal. Uh, like the precursors of the AFD, like earlier far-right parties in Germany, also would be quite anti-Semitic. So the European far-right tended to be very anti-Semitic, and in this way also very different to the United States, where you didn't have, a, to the same extent, a, an anti-Semitic far-right. Uh, at least not in the Republican Party. Um, 
What is interesting now is that as the external other shifts from back in the days, the foreigner, but also the Jew, to the Muslim, now they're saying, well, we are the real, no, 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 we, like, our enemy's enemy is our friend. So we are the pro-Israel party, we are the pro-Jewish party, because the anti-Semites are the Muslims, the anti-Semites are the, the left-wing people. And to be fair, uh, if you look into many European countries, you do have anti-Semitism coming in many ways from some Muslim immigrants, uh, and you have anti-Israel positions usually coming from the political left. So we do see a rather odd uh, realignment going on. And you now have a Jewish Front National, you have a part of the Front National, you have a sub-organization that's the Jewish Front National, you have a, uh, the Jews in the AFD as a sub-organization. So you, they really focus on that. The question to what extent the anti-Semitism that was maybe, may still be there has really gone away entirely, or that's a change in rhetoric. Um, is, a, is an interesting question, but it's actually an interesting parallel to the references to Christianity. They are saying, well, we are, we are Christian uh, because we don't like Muslims. It's a similar way in which they say we are pro-Israel because we don't like Muslims. Uh, but to what extent this is really a deep conviction that the state of Israel is legitimate and that uh, Judaism has a real part to play in their societies, I, I can't speak to that, but there are a lot of people who doubt that. But it is, like, maybe to add on this one last thing, it's really interesting, and I think there are a lot of Americans might have to at least think twice, because the test whether another movement in Europe is kosher, whether if you are an American conservative you can cooperate with an European party, has for a long time been and still is, what's that party's position on anti-Semitism, what's that party's position on Israel? And as a result, I talked to a lot of people here and they were saying, well, no, these parties like the AFD in Germany, the Front National in France or whatever, are actually very much acceptable friends of us because they're pro-Israel. But then again, it would be, it might not be the same pro-Israel sentiment that you have in evangelical circles in the United States. It might come from a rather different uh, set of motivations. And so I have one last question. I don't know, like, I feel like we covered a lot. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything do, else that you, but... Well, I was going to say I was going to ask this question, and it may be spliced in somewhere. But if there's any anything else that I didn't ask or didn't cover, um... I mean, maybe the one of the reasons why we don't see this taboo effect in the United States, uh, because it is actually quite interesting that if you talk to a lot of faith leaders in the United States, they're now more open to the Trump administration because they're delivering on many of the things. But they are still much more critical of the president, in particular of a lot of his rhetoric, than uh, rank-and-file evangelicals or Republicans in general. So if you talk, there's a real almost disconnect between Christian and even white evangelical leaders and, and even clergy on an average uh, level and, uh, and the, the average population, average Republican voters. However, they don't talk to the same extent. They don't create the same social taboo. So we, we have a similar development as in Europe. We have a, a church leadership that is very critical of national populism, that is much more pro-immigration um, and very critical to some of these like radical overtones that focus on Christian uh, values rather than Christian identity. It is actually similar in Western Europe and North America, even in white evangelical circles. However, the difference is that uh, in Europe, these authorities speak out and create something of a social taboo 
against voting right-wing populism. Whereas in the United States, most church leaders who are critical of the president actually remain pretty silent. You have some people speaking out. You had Russell Moore early on. You had this uh, Christianity Today article. You have some Catholic bishops speaking out, uh, but they don't speak out to the same extent, or at least this vaccination effect doesn't seem to be there to the same extent, which on the one hand is, of course, because the Republican Party itself is much more in line with uh, the conservative Christian agenda. But you could still imagine them speaking out whenever the president does something rather unchristian and really focus on policies, which they also don't do. And I think that is largely a result, on the one hand, of structure. There is no authority uh, in the same way. There's no clear... If you, if you want to call Christianity in America, whom do you call? There are a lot of numbers. In, in Germany, if you want to call Christianity in Germany, you have two phone numbers. You have the president of the uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops, and you have the president of the uh, Protestant Federation. These are two people, and they speak for 99% of German Christians. Um, in France, you just call the senior cardinal. Uh, Catholic cardinal is the same, because primarily it's almost all of them are Catholic, um, of the Christians. In the United States, you can even find 50, 60 very high-level faith leaders. You can have a, Rod, uh, a Russell Moore, you can have a Christianity Today, you can have a Pope, all saying this is unacceptable, you'll immediately find 200 other leaders, Christian leaders, who will say the exact contrary. So there's no clear, uh, because American Christianity is so much less hierarchical, so much, less, is so much more diverse. Uh, and also playing into that is that I talked to a lot of Christian leaders and they were saying part of the reason why they don't speak up is that in the United States it's much more, politics often drives the choice of the church or the denomination more than it is the case in Europe. So many Americans are much more open to switching their church or switching their denomination um, if this is something, if the clergy disagrees with them politically. So a lot of clergy are, are telling me, well, they, they disagree with many, many things they would like to speak out, but they are worried that if they do that, people will just leave. And that, again, is an interesting difference to Europe where um, part of the whole thing of being Christian is almost being told off every, every Sunday by your, by your clergy. So there's much more of an uh, acceptance of authority, whereas I think in the United States it's uh, m more democratic in some ways, uh, but then also the risk of politics driving faith rather than faith driving politics. A bit more consumerist, maybe, Perhaps. in the U.S. yes. And another, like, as you were talking, I was thinking about, I remember reading during my grad school days years ago, a European write, wrote an article about, you know, how people who are left-wing or right-wing, if they are in a church and then that church is associated with right-wing or left-wing politics, then they'll leave. But, like, as I was reading it, I felt like there was a disconnect because... In my experience, I don't hear from the pulpit anything political very often. The it's all it's usually at least the churches I go to Bible centric. It's you know scripture spiritual centric theology centric. Very very rarely do I hear anything political. In my current church, I hear occasionally stuff about you know like pro life issues, but it's not vote Republican. It is this is an issue. And same thing with, like, religious persecution. They're not saying one party or the other. They're just bringing up the issue. And uh, and I think sometimes people who aren't in the church kind of think that the pastor is up there saying, 
vote Trump. And I don't, I've never heard that per se. Uh, But that being said, like I'll be in the congregation and I'll sit next to someone and they have like elephants on their tie around election season. You kind of know what's happening. And so, or you're in small groups or you're in community groups, whatever you want to call it in your church uh, organization. But within those conversations, you do see more of a a political socialization of learning politics from the people around you, even though you don't hear from the pulpit. And so my question is, okay, it's like, so you've mentioned like Russell Moore, you've mentioned Christianity, Christianity Today, right? Yeah. And their um, impeachment article. And so, but these are people who their primary job isn't in the pulpit. Um, so when you mention how being told off every week in a German church, uh, that might be an interesting experience. Uh, but the, you know, how are there being are they being told? Are people in the congregation being told not to vote from the FD from the pulpit, or is it these like the two numbers that you're supposed to call the two big leaders in Germany who speak for Christians in German? Are those the main ones telling people off? Like, does that make sense? To to an extent, it's not necessarily just just telling people off. It's more really you're made questioning your conscience. So that, that is much more, I think, the... But it's meant to be slightly uncomfortable. You're, you're supposed to, like, what, like, almost what would Jesus do in this, in this question? Sometimes, I think the most, the most explicit I've heard uh, referencing to, to voting uh, behavior is that they say the alternative for Germany is not an alternative for Christians. But that is very exceptional. Uh, usually, and there's in German churches, no, uh, you won't, you won't ever hear somebody vote this party or this party. The interesting bit in in Europe is that there's a clear, already social taboo, anyways, in society against far right parties, because Germany, in particular, because of our history. So usually, the churches say, and particularly the German church, with its history of collaboration with Nazism and the confessing church speaking out against Nazism. So everything that is far right and smells of neo-Nazism in, in, in any way, even if it isn't, the AFD is no neo-Nazi party, it definitely isn't, but there are some illusions or uh, some, some legitimization of some of the thoughts that might go on there. There might be some neo-Nazis in that party. There's a strong taboo around that, and basically what the churches do, they reinforce social taboos in society. So in this way, they don't necessarily go, it's seen as something different than traditional party politics, almost like a state of emergency saying, well, we don't tell you to vote social democrat or Christian democrat, conservative, progressive, uh, but they're saying this is a party that shouldn't be there uh, to a large extent because uh, this is rhetoric that is beyond what is acceptable in our democratic order. Um, So I think this is the the, the telling uh, telling you off. and in this respect, might not be do, might actually not be too dissimilar to the United States. Uh, I think what is different in the United States is that because the populist movement is now part of mainstream republicanism, is part of the of an overall party that in no way the Republican Party is not a right wing populist party, definitely not. But it's now part of that, so you can't really criticize that part. It's really difficult to criticize that part without criticizing the party as a whole. So if you had a different voting system, you might have a Steve Bannon party, so to speak, and maybe churches would be more open to speak out against that because they're pro-immigration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I think that definitely plays into it. But maybe to also say something positive, I don't want to to proceed as too negative on American churches. 
as you say, one of the big things is actually in a, in a society that is so polarized. Churches are one of the last institutions where you can have a Democrat sitting next to a Republican and worship together. And that is particularly happening in the main, mainline churches where you really have many congregations that are 50-50. Um, and that's really important not to say, well, if you are a Trump voter, go that way. Or if you are a, a liberal, uh, go, go, go to another place. But actually keeping them in, keeping the conversation going, which is another reason why the German churches have actually said, we should be the place where everybody feels comfortable and where we talk about some of the fears about immigration, etc. So actually the AFD voters are very welcome to be there, but we want to talk to them about theology and talk to them on a, uh, on a, on a parish level. So what they're doing very often is like the top level people will say the AFD is not acceptable, but the clergy individually might say from the pulpit, it's not a great, like their policies are not very Christian, but let's talk about it and really try to extend an invitation and uh, create spaces uh, where you can talk about any fear you have and really recreate churches and welcoming spaces that do talk about it, but in a welcoming way. Well, thanks again, Tobias, for coming in and speaking with us for a while, both in this podcast and also during our social hour, which I recommend for listeners, if you're interested in actually seeing him talk, go to YouTube and the website. We have the videos there. And yeah, well, thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.